What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another week and another episode of Unscripted, where we're bringing you professionals from all walks of life. We touch on their backstory, their mindset, and how they navigate through adversity and opposition. I'm your host, Akeem Haynes. Before we get into this week's episode and our first guest of season three, do us a huge, huge, huge favor. Head to Apple Podcasts, Apple iTunes, charitablechartable.com, or Spotify and leave a rating and review of the show. Let us know your thoughts. Let us know what's going through your head. Trust me, this small act goes a long way in moving the podcast forward. I appreciate those that take the time to do so. Now, let's get into the guest for this week. This week on the show, my guest is a financial consultant, marathon athlete, and he's one half of the uber popular podcast, The Fight with Teddy Atlas. I'm talking about Mr. Ken Rideout. You know, I first heard about Ken after listening uh, to his podcast where he co-hosts with um, boxing training great Teddy Atlas. I thought this episode was a great way to start this new season. Um, In this episode, Ken walks us through the ups and downs of growing up in Boston. We get into the hardships of his childhood. We get into Uh, his time spent working as a prison guard. Uh, We get into how he battled his low moments and how we tackled his addiction. Uh, We get into his family dynamics and why him and his wife decided to adopt a baby after having three of their own. We talk about sports, uh, the sports he did growing up and how he discovered endurance sports later in his life. We talked about how he started working with Teddy Atlas and the growth of the podcast. You know, uh, Ken is the real deal, Um, not because he's perfect, but because he embraces who he is as a person and isn't afraid to be authentically himself. He's very passionate. That is why I must warn you before you tune into the episode, uh, there is a little bit of language, right? So uh, make sure that you are prepared for that. Ken is a passionate speaker, is a passionate uh, person, and he definitely keeps it all the way 1000 real authentic Um, and true to himself. This is an episode where I truly believe it's going to bring a lot of insight into many different uh, categories. Um, I enjoyed this episode, and I really believe that you will too. So uh, for the next few months, he's gearing up and getting ready uh, as he's training for the Boston Marathon in April. So be sure to keep up with his progress there. Be sure to follow his journey. Um, I'm sure he will be at the front of the pack. So without further ado, enjoy this week's episode with Ken Rideout. Ken, how you doing? Can you hear me okay? Sorry about being late. I, my One of my kids is home with COVID and my wife was leaving and I was scrambling around trying to get everything in order. Oh, no worries, man. Uh, how, how is it? Is it one of your sons or your daughter? How are they doing? How are they feeling? My, one of my middle son. They're fine. He, he's fine. We all had it. We all had it over Christmas. He's just on a delayed reaction. <laughs> you know, I was about to ask you, man, how was, how was, how was the holidays? But I mean, you kind of just let me in a little insight right there. Nah, they were awesome. That kind of shit reminds you of how lucky you are that all the only challenge I have is that we had COVID. Like, imagine if you had a serious illness. Yeah. It sucks when you're going through that until you remember how lucky we are, man. Look, we're not living on the Gaza Strip throwing rocks. We don't live in Syria getting bombed by your government on one side, ISIS on the other. We're lucky. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Man, Kim, that's actually how I want to start that right here, man. Because I, I I like the way you started that off right there, man. Um, Let me take my glasses off so I don't look too old. What are uh, what are three things that you're grateful for, man? Oh my God! First and foremost, health. We all have one responsibility in our lives. It supersedes work. It comes before your children. It comes before everything because without your health. You're going to be useless to everyone, including your children. You want them caring for you sooner than they have to, because inevitably, we're all going to have to be taken care of. And I try to set an example for my kids that there is no compromising my health and fitness. I run every day. Snow. Matter of fact, I'm like, I almost broke my elbow yesterday, slipping in the ice. I think I parsh- I have a torn labrum that I, I fell in the snow on Friday. This was on Monday because it was blizzarding. And my kids were like, dad, are you crazy? It's snow. You can't even see out there. They said, don't leave the house. I said, for some people, maybe, but I have, I have this, mm. this is my loss to bear in life. Once I make one excuse, then the next one gets easier. But um, so, so I'm grateful for my health. Then I would be grateful for my wife who gave me um, these four beautiful kids. And um, I guess my, the first thing I would be grateful for is health again. Because without health and family, if you have that, you have everything. You know, you know, you see- you know it's, 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 it's funny. You were just talking about, you know, you just showed me the scrapes and the bruises and running in the snow. And I saw the video you're talking about. Man, you know, I've, I've, this is something that we have in common, the running part of it. I don't run anymore. I run at a shorter scale. I was a sprinter, Ken. What you do is a, what you do is a whole different story. I like to just get the point A to point B. But I remember, man, when I was trying to get a scholarship, right, because I live in Canada, born in Jamaica, but I live in Canada. It's, I remember when I was trying to find the research and to understand what was the percentage that it was for me to get a full athletic scholarship to go to a division one institution. I was a dual sport athlete, so I had a pretty good uh, system going. And what my coach said, he was like, Akeem, realistically, man, it's like a 3% chance that you'll be able to do it. And so what always stuck out to me was you have to understand that hard work is a prerequisite for anything. So you don't even got to say it. It's just part of it, right? So the mindset and how you attack running and regardless of what it is and whatever excuses may come, man, where does that come from, Cam? Because you are 50 now. Yeah. I've been, I've been, I've, I've been <clears throat> around some of the best athletes in the world when it comes to running the Usain Bolts, the Justin Gatlins, a lot of these up and comings who make simple excuses, forgetting that that, that, that adds up. Where does that come from, from you, Cam? Because I get the fact that you just look, if I said, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. Where's that come from? Um, I think in my life, I've always suffered from a bit of like an imposter syndrome and a fraud complex. I never felt good enough. I, ne- I still don't. When I think about you and the names that you just mentioned, I think these mother, these, can we curse on this show? <laughs> go ahead and let it go. I got you. I said, these motherfuckers are real athletes. That's a re- all the training in the world, all of it couldn't get an average runner to run like you. You couldn't do it. I could never, ever do what you do. Anyone can do what I do. Mm. Anyone. I have zero athletic. I am not an athletic person. I, I, I know people are going to be like, oh, this guy's full of shit. I'm not, dude. I ran a marathon. Okay. I had, I had uh, some athleticism from a lifetime of like growing up playing hockey and football, but I ran the, 
I ran like a, a 320 marathon. Then I tried again. I ran 330. I mean, look, I know that to the four hour marathon crew, they're going to be like, fuck this guy, blah, blah, blah. But that's not good. That's not good. If you're running under three hours, okay, that's good. That's pretty good. But three and a half, like that's just a guy who wants to try hard. So when I get out there, I know for starters, I have no advantages over everyone. I know that the kids who ran through high school and college and actually had some like genetic gifts, I know that they have an advantage already. So I'm making up for that disadvantage. And candidly, I like winning and I don't want to go there and just, and I don't, I'm not, I'm not a completer. I'm a competitor. I'm going there to compete, not complete. So I don't know where it comes from, but like I said, with the fraud complex and Boston, you're always feeling a little bit insecure in, in the way I grew up in the inner city and my, my brother was an inmate in the prison that I was a guard at. It was just a, a rough, emotionally rough childhood for me. And when I finally had this like recognition about halfway, three quarters of the way through college of like, I'm on my own. Like no one's coming to do anything for me. If I don't take responsibility for this, my life and my well-being, like no one's going to do it. Mm -hmm. And I just, I just got sick of like being average and mediocre and just started applying myself. And I know if someone's watching this and thinking like, oh, he, you know, this, he has something extraordinary. I promise you, I don't. I run a shitload of miles and I try really hard. And I promise you, if you do this, very simple formula if you do this you'll be you'll, you'll probably be better i'm not i don't have nothing is easy every single thing is hard work if it was easy it wouldn't even work doing man i'm really glad that you said that um and i want to go there because man i realize exactly what you just said um whenever i go and speak i always say man sometimes you got to be your own hero right yep. because there's just there's it, it it would be great if when we were in hardships that someone would say, you know what, man, I got you. I'm a, you know, I'm a come, I'm a, I'm a make sure that you're good, but that's not always the case. And a lot of times you have to be that for yourself. Um, I did read, Ken, as I was doing some, I did very, I did enough research, but I wanted to hear it from you. Cause I was like, man, this guy's an interesting cat in growing up in Boston. Right. How did you get involved into um, working as a guard? Because that's not really something that someone kind of says, you know, I, I want to do that. I could be wrong, but usually something happens in between that kind of leads them that way. How, how did that happen for you? No, that's a good question. And I don't think like, I, I'm, I'm surprised more people don't ask how that came about, especially given the background that I just described that my stepdad and brother were inmates. It wasn't like we were politically connected and those jobs are politically connected jobs, but from a young age, I was just really into sports. It was like my escape. And again, I was like, uh, in, in competitive sports, I was much better at a younger age. So as I got older, as a little kid, I was a superstar. As I got older into high school and college, the other kids <laughs> up and then the kids that went on to play in the NFL and NHL, they just like took off past me. And I was like, there's some, there's some level of, of athleticism that you cannot acquire. So if you're going to be a basketball player or like, like, look at like a guy like LeBron James, he could have played in the NFL. You can just see he he's, he's an athlete. Like, and it, I always tell people who haven't been to a professional track meet, like go watch those hundred meter guys just run. You can see them run and you'll go, my body would never move like that. It's moving so fast that it's almost like you either have that or you don't, it, you can't teach that. You might be able to be 
I have it a little bit and then, and then squeeze every ounce of ability out of you. But if you don't have that like division one speed to just don't even waste your time. Cause it's, you can't teach it. And um, so I was very good as a kid, as an athlete, and especially in ice hockey. I mean, I only wanted to play in the NHL. It was the only thing I ever even thought about. And, and a lot of the kids that I grew up with did play in the NHL and were good. Keith Kachuk, Joe Sacco, Dave Sacco. Uh, yes. You know, like real good athletes, like proper superstars. Um, Sean McEachern. I mean, these were like my peers as a kid. Anyway, um, when I was in high school, I was also like a very nice kid. Like I knew I didn't belong in the environment I was in. So I was always got along pretty well with people and had a pretty good, I had a pretty high, um, like, social um what's the eq score like my my social intelligence was high i knew that into like my my my, my iq and academic abilities was average at best but i had a high social iq and i knew that and i could move in social circles and get along with people yeah you know and so 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 i always got along really well with like the teachers and the administrators of the school and i was like a pretty nice kid and it, I became jaded when I got to college and realized like how unprepared I was for life. And, and I became very bitter at the circumstances under which I was raised and my towards my parents and still have that bitterness and something I probably have to address at some point, but I'm still fucking angry at them. Like, I just feel like, man, if you're going to have children, you have an obligation to raise them and, 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 and surround them with love and confidence and not yes. raise damaged kids that are like become dependent on drugs because they're trying to escape their own reality so sorry this is long-winded but to get back to your, que your question I was uh, <clears throat> playing football in high school I was pretty good I played quarterback um, and one of the coaches of the of an opposing team he somehow knew my dad and he asked me after the game big tough Irish guy like a Bill Belichick tough big Belichick type guy, but like no nonsense, no bullshit. He's like, what are you doing for the summer for work? And I said, I don't know, I'll work at the city parks or something. I've done that for the last, like a park leader for the youth. And he's like, come and see me up at the, up at the uh, prison on such and such a date. Here's my card. Call me. So this is in like 1989. So there's no, there's no internet. Like you can't look. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I just assumed I was going to be doing like uh, maintenance work, like cutting grass and stuff. Cause I had a friend who had done that. So I call up, they say, okay, yeah, you're going to start on like, you know, if I got out of school, May 1st, you're going to start May 15th, um, go to this uniform store, pick up these uniforms. They know you're coming. They're charged to our account. So I go there and they give me like full police uniform, like looks like a cop uniform. And I'm like, damn, what? these guys, they, they put the, landscapers and this stuff for the summer what is this? and then i get there first day and it's like an eight hour classroom session but when i say classroom it's like one like you know stormtrooper wannabe type dope at the front of the class like you know a bulky like musclehead prison guard talking about the prison like not if anything it seemed like he was trying to scare us which he did i was like what the fuck am i doing here like this is crazy i'm like a little kid and um they give us a badge and after eight hours, they bring us up to the jail across the street and they're like, okay, here, we're just going to walk through, take a look. The minute we walk through the door, <clears throat> I see a guy, um, an older guy with glasses and some young kid just walks over and punches him right in the face, smashes his glasses, busts his face open. I'm like, I'm looking around like, yo, I pick him up. I'm like, yo, are you all right? And there was another guy near me and, and, and I was like, yo man, are you all right? And he's like, I want to, I want to press charges on that guy. 
And now I grew up in the, in the in inner city, so I knew enough to be like, dude, will you shut the fuck up? We'll talk about this later. Like, please stop saying you're gonna press charges. Cause I'm like, and as it turns out, someone was like, yeah, that's what you get for running your mouth. So I'm like, oh, this guy. So then, so then they, they come and get that guy and another big Irish gangster guy, this guy Barry Hiltz comes running over and picks me up on his shoulder and starts like running around with me on his shoulder, like, like a fireman's carry. And I'm like, dude, put me down. I knew him from the streets. And he put me down. He's like, hey, I just wanted those other guys to know that you're with us, that you that we know you, so they, they won't give you a hard time. And I was like, all right, cool. But it was like being a uh, it was like being a substitute teacher at a high school full of fresh kids, full of like reform school kids, you know, like troublemakers. And they're always trying to clown you. It's not like a movie where they're afraid of you. They're not afraid of you. They'll punch you in your face if oh, you absolutely. step out of line. Ken, man, oh, yeah. man, I gotta ask, man. As a young as a young kid going up in that situation right there and your brother and stepdad were there man what did that do for you mentally man because again i've i've my uh my old football trainer used to say he used to use this analogy he used to say Akeem, in life you either learn what to do or what not to do and he would just walk away yeah. I'm like i'm like yo what <laughs> what does that mean like <laughs> you got to finish that sentence but when you be being in that with family, man, what, 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 what did that do for you mentally? Just seeing that. And was there ever a thought that you said, man, I, I don't belong here. I don't think this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Oh, from the jump. I was like, I, from my earliest childhood memory, I was like, I'm not supposed to be here with these people. I don't know how I'm related to them. I, I like, I remember thinking like, I wonder if they're actually my parents, like, cause mm -hmm. I don't have any qualities with them. I don't, I don't feel like we have a lot in common at all. And um, luckily my stepfather was in the prison before I got there. So I knew the place and I knew tons of people there. Like a lot of my friends ended up in jail and my brother was there, thank God, after I was done there. But he had to deal with going there when the guards and inmates still remembered me. So that wasn't necessarily easy for him, but I was like, don't put yourself in a position to go to jail. Like, you know how many strikes you get before they actually sentence you to jail? Like, you got to be an idiot mm. for, you know, so, but there were other people that I knew. It was just, dude, it was like from the minute I got there, I'm like, what the fuck am I doing here? I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing, but I know it ain't this. I know I've got more to offer than to be a guard for the rest of my life. Like it's, it's dude, it, it is the worst job in the world. It was the biggest eye opener for me. It was like when I went to college, I was just cared about playing football and hockey. I took sociology because someone said that was the easiest. And I just had no, no vision for the future. I just, I, I was not only worried about tomorrow. And then, like I said, a couple of halfway, three quarters of the way through it, I was like, oh my God, I better start trying. But I had been slacking off so much that when I went to do my like senior, um, I forget what the class was called, but it was like a two semester class, the culmination of a sociology degree. It was like a big social experiment you had to run and no one in the class wanted to be my partner. Like no one, I had to do it by myself. No, cause mm. even one, one, one girl wanted to do it with me and the, and the professor advised her against it. And I was like, that's crazy. I was like, these motherfuckers watch this dude. I got the highest score in the whole class. Cause for once I was just like, I'm going to try, I'm going to put everything into this. And I did it. And the woman was like, when I went to see her and she gave me the grade, she started crying. She's like, what have you been doing? And I was like, nah, man, I'm a, I was a slow starter, but I'm up to speed now. None of this, all I need is the degree and I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, and then, and then I'll decide what to do. you know what I mean? Yeah. So I just, that, and that's basically the way my whole life was, it was kind of like, I'm going to get 
my foot in the door and then I'm going to figure it out once I get there. And um, same thing with the running. I just started running, had realized that most of these people are lazy. They don't want to suffer. And that's when I realized, man, if I just try, I mean, that's the reason I'm talking to you because I just tried hard. No other reason. I just tried hard and I just applied that type of work ethic to my whole life. And I just started to live a more disciplined life. Not without ups and downs. I've made lots of mistakes that I like am, am ashamed of, but they're part of the story, you know? Without adversity, you just, like, a, you know, I always tell people, nothing good happens when you're comfortable. Not a single thing, Ken, not a, sing, not a single thing. I've, I've, I've heard countless amount of times you said, man, in different parts, you were like, yo, I'm just figuring this out. I don't know what exactly I'm doing. Um, but I also know uh, that, <laughs> that college was a little bit of a dark place with substance abuse and things of that nature. I'm always intrigued, Ken, you know, uh, no person is, is as strong as they think they are, right? I always say, you don't know how strong you can be, or you don't know how temptation that you will succumb to until you're in a position to be tempted. But I also find out that a lot of our historical things, um, our environment and how we grow up, those the old us is always with us wherever it is that we go. When you found yourself in those low moments, Ken, I mean, man, what was going through your head at that at those times? And honestly, man, how did you pick yourself up from it? Because a lot of people say, oh, just go ask for help. Oh, just go do this, man. It's easy as this. But it's like, yo, sometimes people are so busy with their own stuff. They don't really have time to really or want to always help you. So how did you pick yourself up out of those dark moments? The first thing I'll say is in, with regards to other people helping you, when it comes to addiction and things that you're struggling and self-inflicted wounds, no one wants to help you until you show that you're willing to help yourself. If you're willing to help yourself and you go ask for help, the people who've been there and done that, they'll, they'll kill themselves for you. But in my mind, when I was like in those dark places and using drugs to escape. And, and, and the, the crazy thing is when you use opioids to escape pain and, and emotional pain, it's very, very temporary. So let's say, and I'll give you an example, like, I, cause I had been, I had been on and off drugs for years as an adult, like opioids. And the first couple of days, let's say you have like a few months clean, you take them for a few more days for the first, like two to five days, you're like, oh my God, this feels so good. I'm so happy. I'm euphoric. It's awesome. Then it starts like this. Then it gets to the point when you're at the bottom where you're taking them not to be suicidal, just to get your chemicals right. Knowing, practically speaking, my chemicals are just out of whack. I got to get my, I got to get off these things. Let my shit reset. My rational brain is telling me like, dude, what are you doing? Like get this together. But then the psychological part of me too is like, well, you're such a loser. You up so much. I mean, I guess if you can't get off it, you could just kill yourself. And so in the back of my mind, in a crazy way, I almost use that as a crutch, like eh, worst case scenario, I'll just, I'll kill myself. Like I, I can't take, that's the, that's the level of pain that I was dealing with of thinking about, I can't deal with my life in a sober state of mind. I, when I'm sober, I can't live with myself. I've made mistakes that I can't and when I say mistakes, like I'm a fucking, I'm an open book. Like everything, you're only as sick as the secrets you keep. And when I think about what I've done, all of my shame stems from addiction. So by me sharing this with you, it's just a way of me saying like, hey, 
if you think if people were watching the beginning of this and think I have something good that they want, like be careful what you wish for. I wouldn't want anyone to be have to live with the ups and downs that I go through. I'm making it work for me the best I can, but I wouldn't want someone with lesser constitution to have to deal with this pain because they might have actually killed themselves. And I could tell you, like one of the big turning points for me with that was um, I don't know how familiar you are with uh, psychedelic drugs, and I've never been I've never been a big drug person per se. I just found opioids and was like, oh my god, painkillers! I like this is this is makes me feel great temporarily. So a friend of mine, Justin Wren, a UFC fighter. Uh, a few years ago, he he had gone through, he had struggled with addiction that he had spoken about publicly. So I'm not saying anything out of, out of school here, but he had, I don't know if you've ever heard of DMT, like yes. 5-MEO DMT, Mike Tyson talked about it, got a lot of publicity. It's like a toad venom from a Sonoran desert toad. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. So Justin Wren had told me about this. There was a woman, at, a woman slash shaman in Malibu who um, administered DMT. And I just like sought her out went there on my own on like a random Tuesday at 12 o'clock in the afternoon. I'll never forget on like December 28th. And I went in there, she's dressed all in white. There was another a very attractive woman and another very attractive friend of hers and a, and a handsome guy and they're all in white. It was very intense, like very scary. But I was like, I need it. I need I need to get this right. And it's a constant struggle. I still struggle with it. It's just finding that happy medium of being like not too happy not too sad it's like with any struggles in your life I always tell people when they're going through a hard time like listen to me things are not as bad as they seem and when you get out of this they're never as good as they seem so yes. stop this high and low bull it's not realistic you're in the middle gotta find the balance yeah so I went into this place and I was scared, scared. I don't know if your audience is going to care about this. If they don't, you can edit it out. But I think that this was a big turning point. And um, so I went in there and I was like, you know, I'm okay, I'm going to smoke this DMT. I, I like, it's supposed to like change your whole way, way of thinking. And, you know, but there's obviously I'm scared. Like, will it make me worse? Like I'm already pretty bad. Like, I don't want to be more, I don't want to be more mentally troubled. And um Long story short, she was like, read this little prayer. I was like hyperventilating. And then eventually I inhaled this DMT. And dude, it was momentarily the most terrifying thing that's ever happened to me. Because in my in my brain, I died. Like when I say I died, I'm telling you, I experienced death. Like imagine if you could, that feeling of like when you're on a roller coaster or something terrifying is about to happen. You know you're not going to die or fall off. But that momentary fear of like, whoa. Like just the unknown. That's that's what happens times ten when when I smoked this, and and it was very brief. It could have been fifteen minutes, but it could have been less than one second. But in my brain, it was quick. It was like I was falling down a big hallway. Some people talk about visuals of like angels and spirits. And yeah, it's all I've cool. heard a couple of different pieces. I didn't have that experience. Yeah, I was like this all happened quick. It was like my internal organs, like accelerated into like a crescendo of an orchestra, like, and, um, I was just like, Oh my God, I'm going to die. And then I took a deep breath. Like I, it, it was like a, a, a feeling that you couldn't fight. And I was like, you just had to like surrender. And I was like, all right, I surrender. Soon as I, I took a deep breath and then I realized, Oh my God, I'm not dead. And when I, the reason I tell this long winded story, and I'm sorry if anyone found this boring, but the minute that I realized I wasn't dead, I had the realization that holy shit, 
I'm not dead. I have a chance to fix everything. Nothing that I've done is irreparable. Everything can be fixed. All the that you think matters. I can promise you when you think you're about to die, I guarantee you the struggles you're having with work or you're trying to report a quarter podcast and it didn't record right or this didn't help. Like you're like, none of that matters. Like nothing matters except the people in your life that are important. When, 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 when this, when I came out of this, like, like the, the death part of this, that again, could have, it was instantaneous. It felt like it, but it could have been long. Then you're almost slightly incapacitated, but not in a scary way. It's almost like you're coming out of um, a surgery, like off of anesthesia where you're like, I'm, I know I'm awake, but I don't really want to move. I'm just like, whoa, what just happened? And I'm laying on this floor. There's a picture of it on my Instagram, if anyone cares. And I've got a, like a towel over my eyes. And I just, and you just start really thinking. And I, all I could think about, I have four kids. My oldest son, he's, he, they're, they're all good, but he's just very emotionally sensitive. He needs, like, he needs my constant reassurance. Like, he doesn't want to be teased. My youngest son, I mean, literally, we call him like like a big baby all the time, and he laughs it off because he's he's like mentally tough. You know, we, we literally call him, hey, baby boy. And, and, he, and if you called my other kids that, they'd be like, I'm not a baby. Mm. This kid, but my oldest son, and, and I just had this realization that whatever the whatever the DMT did to me, it just made me realize like, oh my God, dude, these are, here are the couple things that are very important to you. So when all of this happened, it, it, it kind of gave me this perspective that like, you only have one chance through life. Like if you spend all your time worrying about what other people think and trying to live the life they want you to live, I guarantee you're not going to be happy it, because money doesn't make you happy. Before I got married, when I lived in London, I was making millions of dollars. I lived in London. They, the company paid my rent. I had a brand new Porsche. I was flying on the Concorde. I was not any more happy than I am right now. And I mean, not that things are hard or by any means now, but I'm saying when people say, oh, bullshit, you have money. It doesn't matter. I've I've had money and lost money multiple times. When I was in London working, doing that, I was covering Enron. I was trading electricity with Enron. When they went bankrupt, they sent me back to New York and were like, your new salary is like 10 grand a month, which, okay, 120 grand, not bad. But when you're making 100 grand a month and now you're making 10 grand a month, guess what? When you make 100 grand, you spend 100 grand. Like you spend, you know, you live that life. And so anyway, the point is, I'm not trying to say, look at me, I made a lot of money. I've, I, I have, I just told you about all my crazy laws. I tell you that only to say the things that you think matter, I promise you they don't. I'm the happiest I've ever been. The fact that an Olympic athlete wants to talk to me about my athletic achievements and accomplishments is like a dream come true to me. Someone is like, wants to talk to me. They think that I'm good at anything. Think about that. It's, it's, isn't that what we want? Recognition from our peers and respect and appreciation from others. And, and to think that you can provide value to other people that someone might listen to this and think, Ken, that was really inspirational. People send me those notes. Dude, I, I could cry right now thinking about them. It, it's so emotional to me because I know what emotional pain can do. And when you yes. identify with someone and can get an ounce of motivation or happiness or, 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 or satisfaction or relief from their words or their story, it's like, man, it, it's empowering. You know, Ken, thanks for sharing that, man. It, there's, there's, it, it brought me back to a time, you know, 
hardships and struggles teaches you a lot of core values from the ground up. You know, when, you know, uh, when I was, when I was 13, um, I was homeless, um, and in homeless in the middle of wintertime. And I remember my mom and I were walking to the, walking to the bus stop and we're sitting at the bus stop and the, it, it happened like right after school. And you could see hour later, the sky started to get darker. Right. And I remember the first time I came to Canada from Jamaica was the first time I ever seen like Superman movies, looking like Batman, Robin, Green Lantern. I'm just like, yo, this is this how it is in Canada? I was like, yo, it has to be. And I remember watching this Superman movie and there was this girl on top of the ledge and the bad guy like pushed her off. And I'm thinking, oh, it's a wrap for her. I'm eight years old. I'm like, she's going to hit the concrete. She's going to fall. But right in the nick of time, Superman came and saved her. And I'm just like, yo, Canada is different. But when I was homeless, Ken, three hours went by and we were still in the same situation. Four hours went by and the sky started to get darker and it started to get colder until I realized, wait a minute, there ain't no Superman coming. And it was at that dark moment, looking at my mom, wondering what we were going to eat next. How were we going to shower? I still have school the next day. How am I going to get through that? I realized that like, man, as long as I got breath in my body, that there's still a way and that there is something to be grateful for. And I think when you operate in that sense, yeah, absolutely. Things could absolutely be worse. Things could all, something could always go and not go in your favor, but at the core of a human being, man, as long as you got breath in your body, then God has a purpose for you to fulfill. And I think, I think all of what you just explained is that was the ground and the foundation of all that you've been able to do now and still doing now. And so Ken, my next question, man, is like that, that, that you, I can obviously tell you got an ultra competitive nature as a person. It's like a switch when, when you're in competition, the switch is on. And when you're with the family, you know, you gotta, you gotta debrief and be with the family. Cause I was like that too. But when you started running, Ken, sometimes and I don't mean to say in any negative way, but sometimes when you kick one addiction, you pick it up in some other form. What, when you start running, Ken, and even when you run now, man, what does it do for you? Is it, is it like an outlet? Is it a place where you can let all that, maybe that aggression from the past out in competition in a positive way? Or is it just something that just, you just do it and it's free and you just hear and you can put your focus to it. Walk me behind what running means to you, Ken. That's a that's a great observation regarding the addictions and one that not many people make that correlation. But before I do that, I just want to say that <clears throat> having grown up in inner city where there was a lot of uh, immigrants and people, especially a lot of Haitians, I have so much respect for anyone that can go through that, be different. Like I know the way white kids treated black kids when I was in school. There was nothing nice going on. There was no, you know, there, don't get me wrong. It wasn't like a, 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 a good versus evil movie. It wasn't like, it wasn't like we hate all black people, but it was like the kids who spoke French and were Haitian and like were kind of out of the loop. Like you say, coming from Canada, like when they were right, like right into the country, it was kind of like, it, it was, it was terrible in hindsight. And um, it's a very strange thing, race relations, when I think back to growing up, because it was a very racist place. I was in, uh, this is when, in South Boston is when they had the first instances of um, forced busing, where they took black kids from black communities and bust, forcibly bust them into white communities and vice versa. So can you imagine if you're living in the black part of town in the 70s, 
Yeah. And, you, and they tell your parents, yeah, yeah, Akeem's going to the the white school, not the good white school, the other poor white kids who don't want, who are they're angry too, because they're poor. Every, so you got poor black kids over here, poor white kids over here. We're going to force, force them on each other. It was a nightmare. But I always remember thinking like, what the f- do I care what color someone is? Like what? I know it sounds cliche and it's easy and I'm not trying to paint myself as a hero by any means, but I do remember thinking like, what is this? What is this? Like, and and when I met my wife, I told her the first date we ever went on, I said, you know, we're talking about, oh, how many kids do you want to have? You know, we hit it off right away. And I was like, I want to have a a lot of kids, but I want to adopt a bunch of kids too, because I think about people like your story sitting at the bus stop and like the kids who <clears throat> you're lucky you had a mom that loved you like I don't feel like my parents loved me they had me at a young age and I don't think that they really cared about me my father was into sports and I think he loved me because he loved going to the sports he was 19 20 when he had me and my mother was 19 my mother couldn't have cared less she was like the neighborhood floozy who was like smoking weed just like oh I, I, gross and my dad was like big into sports, but not very good. So to him, I was like his second chance, like, we're going to do this. And I was just like, man, <clears throat> I loved sports, but I resented that that was our only thing to connect on. So they didn't live together. So he'd come and get me. But anyway, my point is, when you think about ch- challenges, like to me, what you had to go through, the homelessness, the homelessness isn't even the bad part. The bad part to me would be feeling different and feeling like discriminated against and being like, why do these people dislike me? If that happened, maybe it didn't happen, but I saw kids that it did happen to and remember thinking like, this poor mother has to go home every day thinking people don't like him. Like, I'd be upset if someone said one insulting thing to me to think a whole race of people were against me. And yeah, man, that was like, I, so I have huge respect for, for you and, 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 and for the struggle that I know you went through because I, I just, I saw it and I, I know that that isn't easy. So good on you, man. But to answer your question about the addiction and running, yes, initially the running was like an addiction and now it's become like, now I treat it more like my greatest gift, but also my most important job. Because like I said earlier, it's about my responsibility to take care of myself it's also an exercise in mental toughness. Dude, I don't want to go out and run in the snow. I don't want to run in the rain. I fell down three times in the last four days. Like, and I really got hurt. Like, I know they're going to tell me I need surgery on my shoulder. I can barely lift my arm over my head. And I told the guy over the phone, I'm like, well, I'll come and get the MRI, but I'm not going to do anything until in April. And he said, why? I said, well, I'm going to run the Boston Marathon in April. I'm not going to disrupt my training now. And he's like, yeah, but your shoulder hurts when you run. I said, it's killing me. And I was like, but I said, that's, I'll deal with it. But um, yeah, the running was initially was an addiction, but now it's like maybe a little bit of an addiction, but it's also like my greatest gift. And it's, it's, it's enabled me everything good that's happened in my life in the last like four or five years, more specifically the last one or two, when people started to pay attention to my, to my story because of the achievements I had in running, but I didn't run to get attention but the running brought attention to other things that I had been through. And I think when people realize the story behind what I've been able to do, I mean, clearly I'm not, I'm not naive. I'm not trying to be like a humble brag and pretend I don't know. Like, I know it's interesting. I know that I've had an interesting life, but I also know that's one of my only marketable skills is being interesting and being my authentic self. Yes. And I know it doesn't fit with what people 
your typical interview. I know I'm like going on and on and I'm all over the place. But if I don't, if I don't behave like myself, then you're not really understanding me. I can pretend to be anyone, but like my wife will say, Oh, you did this and you did that. And I said, listen to me. This is the process by which we live where we live and have what we have. I know everything doesn't fit with what you would do it, but the way you would do things wouldn't work for me. And the way I do things wouldn't work for you. I can't do things and say things that you want me to do within reason. I mean, I'm not going to be a jerk, but I'm saying, if you don't think I should tell the guy X, Y, Z with regards to, you know, the car we're trying to buy, then, then you handle it. But I only know how to be me and, and for better or worse. And, and lately, for some reason, it seems to be clicking and I'm like a late bloomer. All of a sudden I'm 50 years old and like, I'm interesting to people. I, I feel like I'm getting like a second chance at life through, through hard work. Like I didn't pay my dues early by doing what I should have done, which was go to a military academy and get an MBA and do all that. That's what I would have done if I could go back and do my life again. But I can't do that. All I can do is handle my business from this point forward and the way I've been doing it for whatever reason for the last one to three years, it's working. And now people are interested. They want to hear what I have to say. And I would tell you that I take nothing for granted. I'm so incredibly humbled and honored to even be talking to you that like, I'm serious when I say, I'm always like on the brink of like emotionally breaking down because it's literally like my dreams are coming true in terms of the work that I've been able to do, what, what my hard work has enabled me to do, be recognized as a hard worker and as a, and as a hustler and someone who people admire for their work ethic. And, and I feel a huge responsibility to live up to that expectation, if that makes sense. Yeah, you know, Kim, man, you know, being yourself, man, I think, I think, I think is one of the greatest gifts that God gave us. Why would we want to be like anybody else? It's flattering. But the photocopy always looks different than the normal one, you know, so so that 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 is what we all appreciate, you know, I've I've been watching uh, your podcast for quite some time you and Teddy Atlas there. But can I got to be honest, man, uh, before we touch on that briefly, there was a I was on your Instagram um, doing some, you know, I like to do my due diligence, like do my research, man, and I saw a photo of you and your family, man. And I was like, man two things stuck out to me. One, you have a beautiful family. You talked about adopting. Then I saw your daughter, but I saw her smile, Ken. Her smile speaks so much volume because she does not feel like she is any different from anybody else. She feels like this is my family. This is my home. This is my peace. And for our listeners, listening, everybody listening, you adopted, um, an Ethiopian baby girl. Yep. Um, tell me the story behind that, man, because man, I was staring at that photo because I was just like, man, this is what joy is supposed to look like. Right. Yeah. And so, man, I maybe she'll tell you later down the road, you know, kids, you never know. But from me to you as a man to a man, I'm like, man, that, that, that warms my heart because kids should not feel anything but love that's dude you hit the nail right on the head now i'm starting to think that you're trying to make me cry but i'm not going i'm going to try not to but i will tell you that when i met my wife i said to her i want to adopt a lot of kids because 
And I didn't care where they were from. Like people, I hate when people make the assumption like, oh, we adopted a black kid. Like you see her skin. I just see my daughter and I get it. She's black. I'm not stupid. I'm not naive. I'm like, I'm, I'm, we talk openly about race all the time because it's a reality. And what am I going to do? Hide from it? So I will say this. I didn't set out to adopt a particular race. I told my wife, I have an obligation to give back to someone and to make, to change someone else's life because if someone offered me the opportunity to take a new family when I was a kid, I would have been like, bye. Okay, pack your stuff. Don't even need it. I don't fucking need anything here. I'll go with my fucking shoes I, without my shoes. I don't need anything here. Everything I have here, I, I acquired myself more or less. I had a paper route, dude, when I was in like the fourth grade. I was like the youngest person they'd ever like let have a paper route. I hated I'd get up to school, but because I wanted good sneakers. I didn't want to be the little dirtbag kid who had nothing and who had like dirty ass shoes. I didn't want to be that guy. I wanted to like represent myself the way I felt like, I mean, not that I'm like, I'm not Mr. Fashion. I mean, I've got on a free t-shirt, but my, my, I, I just wanted to, pres I didn't want people to see how poor I was. And, and, and even if it wasn't poor financially, just poor emotionally from the situation I was like, I just was always stressed and yeah. unhappy but um yes yeah, so i told my wife i want to adopt i want to make a difference and you know i don't want to uh, try and keep it as short as possible but getting all the good parts in um when you go to do an international adoption because my feeling on being born in this country is using myself as an example and politics aside let's use barack uh uh obama as an example Here's a biracial kid born in Hawaii, like, I mean, barely even part of the country. Yeah. He's, his dad is, is not even African-American. He's African, right? I mean, and I just got done telling you how racially, like, divided, at least where I grew up was. So to think that this biracial kid in Hawaii could elevate himself to be the president, the point of the story is, and I tend to be more conservative than liberal, so before anyone tells me, like, oh, like, I don't want to get into politics, but I'm much more conservative. I believe you you get what you deserve. There shouldn't be, if there is social assistance programs, I'm all for it, but it should be a time, it should be like a time limit on it. Like, hey, you got like two years worth of benefits. Use them wisely to get on your feet. But if after two years, you're not on your feet, like you need to reevaluate. Like you, this, you know what I mean? Anyway, so I said to my wife, I want to adopt from a place where we can make a difference. There's some countries in the world where if you're born in an orphanage, there, you may not even survive physically. Very true. So once we started the process, it's interesting, but there's like the Hague Convention. Countries have to be part of the Hague Convention and sign like whatever treaty was signed there about international adoptions to make sure that there's nothing unethical going on, that people aren't adoption, adopting kids and selling kids, selling babies, you know, and it's, this is a real business. This is, there is corruption that like, we could do a whole episode on of the shit that I have seen in the adoption process. Cause we've been, we've been robbed twice by agencies. And I don't think that I'm, I'm like pretty street smart and savvy and I've been hustled twice. And we got a lawsuit going with this one shady character in California. They got us for like 20 grand. Anyway, we luckily got connected with the right agency the first time around. We were on a waiting list. We were approved for um, two babies up to three years old. So we were gonna get either, typically if you get siblings, they're twins. Cause very rarely does someone have like a one-year-old then has a newborn and says, nah, take them both. You know, once they have the kids at home, they typically don't give them up um, for adoption. So 
we're approved. They send us an email saying, hey, we got a newborn baby girl, four, four days old, just came in, youngest we've ever seen. Do you guys want her? I was like, we'll take her. And, and they were like, okay, we'll send you the, you get a, a health profile, like an international, like a, it's, it's, it's like a, I don't know, it's a standard thing for a national doctor. They get a health exam, which tells, you know, all the ailments that they may or may not have. But I said to the woman, and I remember, I hadn't thought about it prior, but when she said that to me, I knew they did it. We had a doctor in the U.S. that would look at the records. But as soon as she said it, I said, skip it. I said, to me, I feel like we just gave birth. If you told me that, hey, you just had a baby and, um, you know, he's missing a limb, what am I going to do? Oh, no, 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 send him back. Let's try, try again. I said, you just told me that that baby is available. She's ours. I don't care what's like, we'll take her. I don't care about anything. Like whatever the challenges are, that's just life. Like, and when I think about her and people think, <clears throat> They look at us and, and, and I get it. People are like, oh, what you did for her is great. But in a way, for anyone listening to this, it's not, that's not necessarily a compliment, man. What, she's, not a, um, <clears throat> she's not like a charity case. You know what I mean? Yeah. She's like, what she did for us far away is what we did for her. So, <clears throat> sorry. No worries, man. No she, worries. Uh, Take your time. You know, if anything, I could I could make the argument that maybe I'm the selfish one. Maybe I just wanted to make a difference in someone's life and didn't care about taking her out of her country. Maybe she was meant to be there. That's a, um, <clears throat> you know, that's a real concern. Mm. Did I alter the course of her life potentially negatively? Mm. <clears throat> Sorry. No, no, no worries. That being said, she doesn't, she knows she she knows she's black. She she knows she's different. And, and it's funny, like we have some funny stories about her being different. Cause you know, so <laughs> one time I took her to uh, a track meet actually. First time I ever she was ever around, like, you know, like how some of those, like not necessarily inner city, but like, and I don't want to say it has to do with economic, but you know those like those black girls in track, they're like tough. They're like a sisterhood. They have a certain attitude. Yes. Black athlete girls. And that was something I respect. And it was one thing that I kind of got worried about with, I would talk to my wife and I'm like, I'm so nervous for her that she like, what if she goes to college? She's not, she's not, she doesn't have that like toughness. She's not getting into a fight. She's not like, yeah. She doesn't know anything about the culture. And my fear is that she gets around some of those like edgy black girls and they just like, not physically, but just emotionally and spiritually just kind of run her over. And she's just like that. I'm so out of my depth. And uh, so anyway, is this a whole, we could do a whole episode on race relations, but I took her to the track meet and my friend, um, my friend Dustin Williams is a, is a trainer for USA track and field. He's like a physiotherapist and everything. So he said, come on over the Mount Sac relays in, um, in LA. Yes. So we go over there and all the black girls are warming up on the hundred meters. And I, I, I hope I'm not offending anyone by calling them the black girls, but I just, I'll get to why, why I would say black or African-American and whatever the right term is, I promise you that I mean it in the most respectful manner. If someone's listening to this and finding uh, issues with anything that I'm saying, I can promise you that my heart is in the right place. So I said to her, I'm like, Tensei, let's go look. The black girls are warming up for the sprints. Let's go watch. And she goes, dead serious. I mean, she was probably six, seven. She goes, dad, who are you calling black? 
And I, I guess we had never really talked about it. And she goes, uh, I said, the black girl's right there. She goes, they're not black. And, and I said, yeah, they're, 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 they're the black girl. What do you mean? And she goes, am I black? And I said, yeah. And she goes, I'm not black, I'm brown. And I said, okay. And she goes, don't call me black again. And I said, oh, I don't, I won't call you black. I said, in that case, let's go watch the brown girls warm up. And I just kind of like, okay, that's cool. I said, but recognize, I don't have to call you black and you don't have to be, you don't have to call yourself black, but that's what people are going to refer to you at at times. And I don't want you to think that they may have bad intentions, but don't make the assumption that because someone said that, that they might not that they might be being disrespectful. Mm, yes. it, 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 listen, I'm not an expert in race relations, so I do the best I can in a real world situations with my daughter, the best that I think for what's best for my kid. And uh, so anyway, we're talking to her and then who comes over? Vajtai Cunningham, Randall Cunningham's daughter. And she's like jumper, yes. 110 pounds. Like she's a supermodel. I mean, she is gorgeous. World champion in high school in the high jump. And she comes over and just immediately is like, hey, what's up? What's your name? And I got awesome pictures of her. We texted her hours before she jumped in Tokyo at the Olympics. She texts right back, texting pictures and stuff. Like just, just like one of the nicest people I've ever met. I stay in touch with her. She's like, when Tensei gets a little older, bring her out here to Vegas and let's hang out together. And she just, she just got it right away. And um, that was a great example for me to have Tensei be around like other, other black girls and just see you know but then she's she'll also tell me if i say oh tensei look at that girl's hair because i always like pay attention to the hair and she's like dad stop pointing out the black girl's hair to me and i'm like all right take it easy. she's like you're trying too hard i was like i'm only trying hard because i love you i want you to have yes. like a good life but she said to me one time she was crying she said i don't like being different and i she said it's not cool and i said i can promise you it is cool you don't know it but i promise you it is one of my, my son went to school with um, Keisha Cole's son and uh, her husband was uh, Daniel Gibson, Booby Gibson played for the uh, Cleveland Cavaliers. Yes. Mm -hmm. And um, they invited us once to, to her son's birthday party at Disney. It was just us and them and their son. And, you know, Keisha Cole at Disney is like, it's like Michael Jackson's walking through. She's yeah. a superstar. Yeah, so I said to my daughter, I said, you see when we went to Disney, when we were outside, we lived in the Pacific Palisades, like right on the line with Malibu, which is a very, very white place. People were fine, but it was, there was just not a lot of diversity. And we were walking around and security's walking with us. And I said to her, I said, you see Keisha Cole? I said, no one wanted a picture with me. Everybody wanted to talk to her. You just only see what's like right outside our door, but the world is big civilization started in Ethiopia and the Rift Valley is where they found the first humans. I had to give her a whole lesson. I said, you know, they say that Jesus spoke Amharic, which is what your mom speaks. Cause she knows who her mom, like we know the mom would matter. Yeah. And, uh, so we try to keep her connected, but you know, so there's, there's things like that, that where, where it's obvious that she's different, but then there's other things like when it comes to any kind of family dinner or family going out to dinner or family time, she calls it, she loves it. She loves, she she gets up. If one of the kids is sick, she'll make them breakfast. She'll make lunch for everyone. She's like going to be the best mom in the world. It's just in her. It's just, it's just innate. She wakes up every morning. First thing unsolicited takes the dog down, feeds the dog, takes the dog out the poop, picks up the poop, comes back in. And then in here, I sit in my office every morning, same thing. She comes over, 
She comes over, gives me a hug, sits on my lap. We talk for a minute and then she goes about her business. And, uh, you know, if I miss her, I'm like, hey, whoop, Tensei. I yell out there to her. I'm like, what are you doing? And she'll come in and she'll be like, what's up? I'm like, and she's like, oh, sorry, I forgot. Uh, all right, I know. I got to give you a hug. We get like a few minutes in the morning and it's like, dude, it's beautiful. It's, uh, she, it's, it's unbelievable. It's all, having all the kids is the best thing ever. But like, I love them all the same. But this, it's just a unique experience that we have with her. And my wife will always be like, oh, you're favoring Tensei. I'm like, she's the only girl, of course. And she's like, yeah, but you can't let them know. I go, dude, I'm not perfect. I'm sorry. So I'm going to be like, I'm so too nice to her. What do you want me to tell you? But she gets, I will say, she gets in trouble just like the other kids. And when they were like, you know, when they were young, I mean, I think maybe they've had one or two spankings each, like a whack on the ass. Like she's not immune to anything. She gets the same exact treatment. Matter of fact, I'll always joke with the kids at dinner and I'll be like, they're all sitting around and I'll say to the youngest one, I'll be like, Camp, come on, buddy, you know you're my favorite kid. And they'll be like, Dad. And I'm like, I'm just kidding. You know he's not my favorite. And then I'll look back at him and I go, and uh, right that's, that's like, that's I do it to them all the time, almost to emphasize, like, don't be insane. Everyone here gets treated the same and that's the way it's going to be, whether you like it or not. Man, so. can you and your wife are doing an amazing job, man. If there's one thing I learned about kids is they're going to watch what you do more than what you say, you know, until, until they get, they get enough to say, okay, you know, but once they see what you're doing, like all, everything you just mentioned, I'm sure all of your kids would react and do the same thing. So that's a testament to you and your wife's heart. And I, and I, I respect that, man. I think is you're doing the best with what you know, despite the circumstances, because it is different. But the fact that you're willing to go out and say, okay, hey, let's go watch that. Because I see it. Going to go watch that is, okay, let me get an understanding of how they're doing. So maybe I can repeat the same thing over here and try to get the right formula, man. So I see it mentally. I see it right there with you. Uh, last, last two questions, Ken, man. Obviously, you know, apart from your uh, running and the business that comes with it, um, you also run one of the hottest podcasts, especially combat sports um, with you know, the legend, Teddy Atlas, man, how, how, how did that happen? And, and I got to ask you, you know, um, cause Teddy's older than you. Um, he's, 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 we all know about custom auto and Mike Tyson. Um, but every person that I meet, I'm always intrigued about the person and, 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 and what we get from it, right? There's something to learn from every single person, whether it's what to do, whether it's what not to do, whether you want to take something or whether you don't want to do that. But I'm curious, what 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 has Teddy taught you? Yeah, man, that's a good question. And uh, yeah, when you were saying that I'm on that podcast, I, I literally wanted to say, like, can you believe how lucky I am? Look <laughs> at what I'm doing. I'm like, can you believe this? I feel like I'm watching some of this stuff happen to other people. If you told me when I started running, for instance, that I would win a race, I would be like, are you crazy? Do you know how many dorks show up at those races that have been running their whole lives? Yeah. And then I won the, the Pasadena half marathon, finished in the Rose Bowl, 9,000 people on TV. And they interviewed me right after. If you saw my Instagram, she's like, oh, he's the winner. First place finisher. How was it out there? And I was like, oh, it doesn't say much about the competition when an old man is winning. <laughs> and I felt so bad. But like, I don't know, you have to maintain a level of humility and, and recognize like my wife like, how if they never come to the race because it's to me it's all business and I'm not my best version of myself before the race I'm like I'm go I mean I'm I'm, I'm aggressive in a, in, a, in a healthy way and I should be like how was the race and if I won I'll be like oh, I won I won but everyone stinks she's like and if you don't win I was like I needed to train harder mm. she's like 
So, but I think that that's what keeps it going. But back to, to Teddy and the podcast, my friend Rob Moore is a PR guy and he, um, I had introduced, he, he basically left his job at Edelman, a big PR agency in New York, and he moved out to LA and we were doing endurance sports together. That's how I met him riding bikes. That's why I say everything good in my life came from endurance sports, everything. And um, we were riding bikes together and um, chit chat and he was leaving his job to do uh, freelance PR. And um, he, I introduced him to Mike Lee, who was a super middleweight champion at the time, undefeated fighter and um, hit Mike Lee's dad knew Teddy and Rob was working with Mike and his dad on some uh, PR stuff yeah. and introduced Rob to Teddy. Teddy's ESPN had just stopped using Teddy on air a lot. And, and, he, he basically Rob said, look, I'll, I'll help manage you and I'll help you start a podcast to get your voice out there. I mean, at the time, Teddy had like a flip phone. He like didn't have social media. And my friend Rob is really like in terms of the mechanics of the podcast and what we've been able to do has been the brains of the organization. He does all the editing. He's like one of my best friends. He's just like the nicest guy in the world. I trust him blindly. But he said to me, hey, you want to do this podcast with Teddy? And I was like, are you kidding me, dude? I'll like do anything. Like, let's go. So we had lunch together. Teddy and I hit it off and we started grinding together. And Teddy is, um, what you see with him is what you get. The one thing that I've learned from him is um, uh, dependability, being dependable and to be honest. If you say you're going to do something, you have to do it. And, and Teddy demands people around him do the right thing. Meaning if, if there's a corner to be cut, and it's not necessarily illegal or, or um, you know, unethical. Like there's no shortcuts with him. It's just like, do the right thing. So like, for instance, if, if someone asks him to come and train a fighter, like uh, I'm making it up, but let's say there's a heavyweight who's got a chance to win the title, but the guy's been like, you know, accused of sexual assault and has a bad reputation, Ted would be like, I don't work with bad people. Or the father's too overly involved. You know, and, and, and to Teddy's credit, he'll sometimes ask, like, he won't ask my opinion on whether he should do something, but he'll be like, so-and-so called wants to train. And I said, well, you know that he's got X, Y, Z. And he's like, yeah, you're right. That's why I told him no. But keep in mind, he's like, ESPN stopped using him. It's not like he's, I mean, I don't think he would mind me saying it. it's not like he's a multimillionaire and doesn't have to work. Like, we all still have to work to maintain. He's got a family. He's got grandkids. He's likes to do the things he likes to do, but he will not compromise his integrity for a dollar. And if that means not training a guy, passing on opportunities, I've seen him pass on opportunities that were worth several million dollars because he would not put himself in a position to be with bad people. Yeah. And that's what it's taught me is like just be, being accountable and doing the right thing, even when it's not easy and being loyal to your friends, even when it's not easy. Like if someone called and said, if ESPN called and said, hey, we're, uh, we want you to take Teddy's slot on this thing, I'd be like, even though I'd love to be on TV talking about sports, I would just be like, yeah, sorry, no can do. And I know Teddy would do the same thing. Kenny, would, Teddy, we want you to do this podcast, but we don't want Ken. I'm pretty confident that Teddy would be like, we'll take it or leave it. We're a package deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's a take that I get. But from you as well, too, character speaks so much volume. Um, Ken, last question, man. Um, April April 18th, if I remember correctly, is the Boston Marathon, man. Hey, the, when I was running, there was certain meets, Ken, that I knew I had to perform well there. Right. Obviously, apart from the Olympics and World Championships, there is uh, a big meet in the UK. Um, but 
there are some meets, Ken, where I'm just like, man, I have to gear up for that one and I have to show out and I have to show up. Ken, this is one of those meets, the Boston Marathon, man. One of the biggest ones. Um, I think there's there's probably 10 main ones, but that Boston is always in the top three, man. What's going in your head right now, man? I know you're heavy into training because there's about three months left to get into it, man. But how are you feeling, man? Just even when you started running, man, did it even occur to you that that that, that you could be a part of this, that this was part of the goal? Because this is a big deal, man. No, if you told me, I mean, it, like I said, it's been going on for a few years now, but to be like, I got a free entry into the new, into the Boston Marathon <laughs> as an invited athlete, not with the pros, but I don't want to race in the pro field because I know that I can't, be competitive there. So I, you know, I always want to win the master's division 40 and over, which I won in New York, you know, alongside my, my name forever is in the record books next to the past winners, like Meb Flesky, Abdi, Abdi Rockman, guys that I'm happy and privileged to call my friends. But I was texting Abdi Rock, Abdi before the New York marathon saying, Hey, what's up, man? I've got this race tomorrow, blah, 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 blah. Just shooting the shit. And I was like, dude, I'm going to win this master's division tomorrow. He's like, you got this man. Oh, cause I said, I'm happy you're not here. Cause I'm going for this master's title. So when I won it, I was literally like, Abdi, I did it. And he he texted me back and he's like, I knew you were going to do it. He's like, good for you. I mean, it was just like, you know, I like to call my running friends nerds, but I'm like the leader of the nerds. Um, but yeah, so so Boston, yeah, there there is a part of me that's like, all right, it's go time, Boston. I've run it before. I ran 235 in, in 19, but that one was awesome because Des Linden, my good friend, won it in 18. So I took the pro bus with her as her plus, plus one because she could bring her agent. So her and I sat in the pro, the church where they uh, – where they kind of like get the pros set up, we're warming up together. We had our own bathroom. It was oh, just, yes. and then I get the bed and ran 235 and I had run 228, right? Um, I no, I had run, I had run, I don't know, I had run some fast times, but 235 was disappointing. And, um, but yeah, with this one coming up, like, yeah, there's a part of me that's like, all right, the Oli- it's the Olympics, just like it doesn't matter what, what the event is, it's the emotion that I feel. And I can promise you that for me, the Boston Marathon is the same feeling you'd get, maybe not for the Olympics, but definitely for like Olympic qualifier, yeah. a world championship. And I'm like, okay, it's on. And there's a part of me that's like, okay, I'm nervous. But then when I get nervous, I remind myself, no one's going to punch me in the face. No one's going to choke me unconscious. No one's going to like pull my pants down in front of an auditorium full of people. Like the worst thing that can happen is that I don't run that well. That would suck, but I'm still going to go home and my kids are still going to love me. And I'm still going to like represent myself with honor and integrity. And if I don't finish, well, I'll win or die trying. And if I can, and if, if that happens, well, I'll cross that bridge when I get to it. But I, I have left finish lines multiple times in an ambulance, literally when I was like, Oh my God, I think I'm going to die. What's the matter. I think I'm going to die. I, I don't know what's wrong with me. Um, when I crossed the finish line in, in New York this year, it, my time wasn't great, but I was violently throwing up and I was like unsteady. I emptied the tank. Cause here comes Shalane Flanagan in the finishing shoot, trying to pass me at the end. And I'm like, Oh hell no. I am not going to get passed by a girl in the finishing shoot. I know I'm going to get killed for this comment. Please don't cancel me, but I'm just being honest. I didn't want this uh, woman to sprint past me at the finish of the marathon and I'm running and I beat her by one second and I end up winning the masters by three seconds. Mm. And because the start lines are all different and staggered, 
you just that that sprint probably won me the race because I saw her and was so insecure about being beat by a woman that I was like, ah. and when I emptied the tank there, man, I I literally was like, oh my god, I am not well. I'm throwing up and I'm on. I'm very unstable. And they, you know, they're trying to rush you through the finishing shoot. At this point, I was like in the top 50, 60 people, so it was very thin in the finishing shoot. And uh, the guy's like, come on, keep it moving. I'm like, dude, please give me a minute. And then and he, he keeps pushing. And I'm like, dude, get the off me and eventually the guy knocks me down and i'm like dude come on and he's like oh we need a wheelchair and i was like get out of here i just jumped right up and like found some energy to like run away from him before they tried to put me in a wheelchair <laughs> but you know i i just keep reminding myself during the races like this pain is temporary you're not gonna die you've been here before we've been here it's dark but i know where the i know where the doors are i know where this maze goes to it's just a matter of how long is it going to take me to get out? I, I, I'm, I'm very, I've become very comfortable with being very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. You know the feeling. It's like, <clears throat> this is where it's done. Because the pain that I've gone through in training <clears throat> compared to that last six miles, because in marathon, I tell everyone 20 miles is the halfway point. If you're suffering before 20, you're in a bad position because you still have six miles to run. Yeah. So... If the if if you're struggling before six, before 20, you're in a bad position. And in New York, I remember I was telling my coach Mario, the minute that race started, I was like, oh man, one of these days I'm gonna have to work for every inch of this, every inch. I mean, from the first three miles, I was like, usually you can converse a little bit during the marathon because you're not sprinting. But I mean, from the jump, guy was trying to talk to me, and I was just like this. I don't even, I can't even talk. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm redlining. I don't know what my heart rate was, but it, some days you have it. And then I ran a half marathon two weeks later and ran like a 90 second PR at 50 years old. I ran a 110 and lost by like 30 seconds to a 27 year old professional distance runner who ran at Vanderbilt. And um, I felt unbeatable. I was like, I am so strong. I, if this cor course didn't have six or 700 feet of elevation gain, I'll bet you I could have run under 110. And it was good. And it like motivated me now to like, Hey, what can I do next year? I've run one, run, I've run faster every year for 15 years, wow. either the marathon or the half marathon. So these people who tell themselves, Oh, I'm old. I can't do this. Like, don't keep telling yourself that because it's not true. It doesn't have to be true unless you accept it. It's like anything in life. You don't lose until you accept the loss mm -hmm. in, mm -hmm. in, in, in life. Okay, in a game, the clock can run out and you just ran out of time, but you didn't really lose if you tell yourself you didn't lose. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Life is just about the stories we tell ourselves. It's the narrative that we attach to situations. You and I can see a car accident and have two completely different versions of, a, versions of the events that took place. If you tell yourself, acknowledge like, yeah, I came up short with this, or maybe this didn't go right. But I know if I had done this, I probably could have done this. In other words, there's no losses. There's only like learning experiences. You know, it's uh, a lot of times, Ken, you know, I always I'm trying to be cognizant of the fact that, you know, I got to I got to marry the right story and divorce the one that I don't like. <laughs> yeah, and a lot good. of times we marry the story of it's never going to work out. It's always going to be like this. And that's not the right relationship to have. It's just not going to, it's just not going to work. It's not going to be good. Um, one last thing that just came to mind, Ken, uh, uh, I know for me personally, and just hearing what you just said, you know, it's funny about running, right? Is sometimes when you feel the best, you don't really, that's not, that's not going to be a good day of running, but sometimes when you 
at least for me for sprinting, every time I ran well, I never felt good. But when I felt good, I never ran well. And it's that ebbs and flow of everything. But uh, Ken, thank you so much, man. You've been so gracious with your time. Really appreciative of it. I know you have a lot of things going on right now, man. But where can people keep in touch with you and keep up with what you're doing, man? I know you're a couple months away from, from the Boston Marathon. But man, how can people keep in touch with you? And maybe if they want to shoot you a message, how, what's the best platform for them to do that? Definitely Instagram. I spend a lot of time on Instagram and social media gets a bad rap, but I told my wife, she sometimes she'll be like, enough with the Instagram. And I'm like, no, no, you're right. Okay. I try to limit the time, but I say it's, it's the most powerful tool. It allows me to keep up with my friends without having to call them. I know oh, so-and-so skiing or oh, this one is old riding his bike or, yes. and, and I just, it's, it's allowed me to connect with like-minded people. I converse with the people I like. Sometimes people get a little pushy or it's, a little bit aggressive on the dms and then i just tell him like dude enough with this bullshit like you know be like i'm trying to be respectful like don't abuse it. like you know people start texting me during a fight what'd you think of that round i'm like dude come on man i love you i'm trying to be cool but it's too much <laughs> recognize i like i have a whole i have i'm trying to lose friends uh, you know what i mean i'm not looking for new ones i mean i would love having acquaintances but like i don't have time to be texting like shenanigans with people but where do you live uh, so right now I live in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, uh, but my fiance lives in America. So when we get Where? married in September, then um, I'll move down that area. Where? Um, we're not sure yet. Um, it depends where she gets an opportunity. Um, where does she live now? So right now she's the director of operations for uh, University of Alabama at Birmingham. So she's in Alabama right now. Ooh, Birmingham is really close to me. I'm in Nashville. Oh man. Yeah, 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 yeah. So if she's still there, um, and if I can come down, man, I mean, if you're in the area, my brother, we, you know, we would love to connect Dude. in some capacity. Hell yes. Like, we need to make a point to do that. If you're, next time you come into the U.S., let me know. I'm traveling on, like, in the next couple of weeks, I start, like, really traveling, and I'll be going to all the UFC events. And, um, yeah, man, I'd love to link up with you. This has been really fun, and I have incredible admiration for anyone that can run at the level that you ran. It just speaks volumes about someone's personality, because like I said, you can't turn yourself into a sprinter, but you can take a sprinter skill set and shit the bed and waste your talent. Yeah. Someone who's been able to do it, had the talent, recognized it and worked their asses off. So I love to connect with you in person. And uh, like I said, I'm, I'm so honored and privileged that to, to speak with you and, incredibly humbled that you would care to hear my story and so thank you for um allowing me to ramble for a little while oh ken it's been a pleasure man let's all uh, continue to stay in touch man i'm going to be following you and everything you got going on man i'm i'm, I'm a person who I, I feel like i've been around enough people and been enough hardships and situations to know a person's character in their heart man and uh you're a real one, man. You're a real one, man. And 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 I, I know I'm not the first to say that, and many will say that, but I believe in giving people their roses when they're alive. I think it's stupid <laughs> to wait till something happens and then we say, oh, maybe we should have. No, man. So I appreciate it, man. Um, you have a you have a new supporter over here with me moving forward, man. I appreciate your time again, brother. Yeah, man. Vice versa. Thank you very much. I've uh I'm going to jump because I'm 15 minutes late yes, from my yes. conference call. Yes. But this was awesome. I'll talk to you. Uh, I got your email and uh, 
hit me on DM on, on Instagram too. Let's, uh, let's catch up later today and see how we can uh, find a way to link up, man. I, yes. I really appreciate and respect you for having me on and uh, reaching out. Thank you. It's a pleasure, Ken. Have a good rest of your day, man. You too, brother. Thank you. Thank you.